When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And I'm Ethan. And if this is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome. If you like what you hear, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. If you've been around for a little while and you want to uh, tell us who you'd like us to talk about next, you can find us and submit those things on Instagram and Facebook. But if you would consider yourself a fine connoisseur, like a fine wine of good music, go down in the description and uh, become a patron on Patreon. That's where all the other lovers of good music are congregating. You get episodes early and you get uh, special access to the Bad Music Podcast, which uh, we do at the end of all the episodes where we talk about the six worst songs from an artist. But Lucas, we have some data. We are so incredibly close to 100,000 listens on the podcast. Yes, we're, we're sitting at like 99.7. We're like we're 300 so- people away. <laughs> so, um, I'm, this episode will take us there. The Rolling Stones are going to roll us into I'm 100K. Sure, yeah, I'm sure they will. I'm, I guarantee by, because we, we get like 2,000 a week at this point, and oh, so wow. I'm, I'm very confident that a by this time next week, uh, we will be at that mark. So expect once we uh, do our next episode that uh, we'll be making that big um, announcement. I'm so excited. I've I've said this before, but this is a number that I didn't think was physically possible for our little podcast to <laughs> uh, get to. That's such a that's such a big time number, and mm-hmm. it just, it keeps blowing my mind the more I think about it. So I'm really excited, as you can tell, and uh, be looking out next episode. I'm sure we'll uh, do something a little special. Maybe have some extra stuff that we'll talk about, and uh, it's gonna be a good time. But, but today we're, we are we're, we we kind of have to speed through a little bit because we're talking about the Rolling Stones today. Yeah. This is going to be a big episode because this is a big band, one of the biggest bands of all time. In fact, you could say that they are the number two band of all time, regardless of rock, pop, whatever. Um, This is a massive group. They are number two overall album sales of any artist, period. Just number one being the Beatles, I'm assuming. Yes. Um, I mean, just the Rolling Stones have such a large 
history, a large discography. It was, it was a very daunting task to rank even their first ten years because so there's so why, much music through. Why, uh, I guess, why'd you pick them now? Like, I guess, what if they're the number two band? Like, what took so long to get around to them? Well, my thing is that I didn't want to front load the our first era of the podcast with all of the best bands i because then after that we would be talking about all the medium bands i kind of want to space out the big time legends because then it'll constantly you know you may think well i don't understand why i haven't done this band so that way we always have a legend that we can kind of (laughs) you always have Uh, a legend in your back pocket Yes, but at this point, I was just like, "It's, it's. We can't wait any longer. It's time that we finally do an episode on these guys." So, question then, I guess, in the Beatles episode, and even kind of every lay person, kind of, and if you don't understand, the Beatles were number one for many reasons. They had, they were making their own sounds, and they were like, kind of like, they took music in a whole new like direction. Like that's yeah. how prolific they were. I guess you could really say the the birth of modern music was when the Beatles came. But I guess what makes the role like what what mark would you say that the Rolling Stones left? Like what made the Rolling Stones so prolific? So um, you could say that the Rolling Stones did to rock and roll what the Beatles did to pop music, mm. as far as they set the example of what it's supposed to be. What was it before they, them? So the early the first wave of rock and roll is all the stuff from the 50s that's your elvis your chuck berry your buddy holly all that stuff from the 50s that's that's the first wave of rock and the first wave of rock is very narrow in what it could do because there was a there was a formula and it was always based around the 12 bar blues like you listen to pretty much all 50s rock and roll you can hear 12 bar blues it's it's very rare when it deviates from it okay now of course you know typically um your how good of a rock and roll artist you were was how great of a song you can make with that limitation this was still back in a time where every genre had very strict rules that it had to adhere to and not just rock and roll but really lots of music you didn't have the blending of genres you couldn't hear something that jazz was doing and put it into rock and roll or you couldn't hear what um what r&b was doing and put it into um blues i mean yes they kind of all did stem from the same roots but they all had their own identities um, like country music didn't mingle in with the other genres that were going on and so on and so forth. Yeah. There were very, very strict borders to where, you know, rock sounded like rock, jazz sounded like jazz, blues sounded like blues, and so on and so forth. So when you get to the Beatles, this is the first time that everything starts to meld together. Um it's the first time that you can start borrowing from other things, mainly because of the fact that you've got these guys that are writing their own songs. Even a lot of the 50s guys, yes, you did have some people that were writing their own songs, but it was not the normal. Really, you had these 
these buildings that were full of professional songwriters that would write songs in specific genres. And depending on the genre of the song that they wrote, they would sell them to whatever artist they think would be a good fit for it. And, uh, and then of course, you know, people covered each other relentlessly. Um, so, you know, someone has a big song, everyone else is going to make their version of that song. Mm. It, it's, you know, it's, it, it was similar to blues and jazz in that way to where it was just, you know, like you had your standards weird that you were all, all pulling from. And so, um, because of how limited rocks, um, purview was, it gave it a very short lifespan. It really only lasted about six years. And then in 59 rock pretty much disappeared from America. Um, it didn't help that pretty much all the big time rock and roll stars also, um, disappeared from the landscape. Um, 59 was a really strange year. Uh, Elvis was put into the military. Buddy Holly died in a plane crash. Uh, little Richard retired to become a preacher and, you know, just kind of everyone really fell off the face of the map. That was a big rock and roll star in the fifties. And so it left this void and where it resurfaced was in England at that time, there was no such thing as an international act unless you were American. If you're American, you can have appeal all over the world. But people that weren't American did not have worldwide acclaim. Pretty much you just you got to just be popular in your own area, and that was it. Mm. No one from outside of the States had ever made it big in the States. And it was what every uh british artists coveted because they knew if you could make it in america that's the big audience that's where you're going to make the most money and so kind of the british artists were salivating to finally get that that um overseas hit and that's where the beatles made their impression they were the first international group to have a number one in america so then where did the rolling stones come in so the rolling stones um, really formed close to the same time as the Beatles um, as far as they started recording around the same time. The Beatles were earlier and um, where the Stones fit in is that they were hard disciples of the blues. They didn't as much adhere to the pop side that the Beatles did because the Beatles yes, they loved the blues, they loved early rock and roll, but they also had a lot of R&B and soul in their repertoire. Um, you look at their first album, and half of the songs are originals, half are covers, and a lot of those covers come from Motown, which was really the domineering pop music force in the early 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, when you hit 63, 64, that was when Motown was really starting to explode and really starting to produce for itself a lot of hits. So the Beatles really pulled from that a lot, where the, the Stones... They didn't even really like to consider themselves in the beginning as a rock and roll group because rock and roll was very much not considered to be as much of the rebellious genre that, first off, it once was and what it would once again become. Because, you know, when Elvis was around and Chuck Berry, like, you know, rock was very controversial because of its provocative nature. And when the Beatles came around and reintroduced rock and roll they were very squeaky clean they were very lovable like the parents 
uh, were just like, oh, I would let my daughter date a beetle. <laughs> and the Rolling Stones were not about that. First off, they were not good-looking like the Beatles were. Most of the guys in the Rolling Stones were an ugly bunch of dudes. And it also just was not in their nature. They didn't want to write bubblegum pop rock music. They wanted to have hard-hitting blues music that was true to the nature of the blues. And so, um, you know, they had that that fundamental difference about them, but because they weren't writing for the pop charts at that time, they weren't able to rise as quickly as the Beatles did. And so what you'll find that's very um, permeative throughout the Rolling Stones' early career is that they, there's always this comparison with the Beatles. And they're just, you know, obviously they're a British group. They're kind of playing in the same vein as far as it being rock and roll, although they definitely produced very different strains of rock and roll. But when the Beatles crossed over to America in 64, in January of 64, that started a musical movement called the British Invasion. And what that meant is that once... All the other British artists saw that the Beatles just made in America. They all were just like, oh, this is our time. We got to get over there. And um, that included the Rolling Stones. They saw that the Beatles broke in America, and they're just like, well, we can do that too, but we're going to do it with our brand of rock and roll. And other bands, part of the um, British invasion that came over were the Kinks, the Animals, and the Who. So they were all kind of part of that initial British invasion of kind of for the first time something outside of America invading the American pop charts. And so the Stones were really for probably the first half of the 60s kind of considered to be the ugly Beatles, the mean Beatles. <laughs> um, you know, they were they were the bad boys where the Beatles were the good boys. They were the nice, sweet boys, and the the Rolling Stones were the dangerous ones. Um, the the how I said that parents would be um, okay with their daughter dating a Beatle. Well, their kind of their catchphrase was, "Would you let your daughter date a Rolling Stone?" Kind of like meant to be like very menacing sounding. Mm -hmm. um, and really, where the Rolling Stones started to make their own indelible mark in music is in about the mid to late 60s. And there's a couple of things that really stood them apart. First off, um, you have Mick Jagger, who is one of the premier rock and roll stars ever. Maybe the premier rock and roll star. Um, all great front men all derive from Mick Jagger. Because he actually did something I didn't realize before until I did the research, but he really was the first in rock and roll to do this. He was the first front man to not be encumbered by an instrument. And I started to think about it. And you look at all the fifties, great rock and rollers. They all played an instrument, even Elvis. He didn't go instrumentless until his comeback in the sixties and seventies. He always had a guitar when he played in the fifties. Uh, Chuck Berry had a guitar. Jerry Lee Lewis was on piano. Uh, Little Richard at the piano. Buddy Holly played guitar. Like, none of them just stood and sang. And I thought that that was very interesting. Um, even none of the Beatles at that time. they All the Beatles played instruments when they were on stage. You know, there was kind of no wasted spots with them. And so 
Mick Jagger was the first rock and roll frontman to just get up there and entertain with his um, with his voice, with his um, with his moves. He really borrowed a lot from the soul funk guys, particularly James Brown gave him the inspiration for a lot of his now famous moves. Um, he really created the man persona. Wow. And of course, rock and roll has a enormous debt to that. That's mm. something the Beatles never did. Uh, the Rolling Stones also were the ones that created the sex, drugs, and rock and roll persona of a great rock band. <laughs> they, yeah. they had the first ever rock and roll drug bust. Uh, <laughs> they were constantly involved in all kinds of scandals. Like, they never shied away from being nasty boys. And... Um, you know, just that that kind of that repulsive rock and roll figure that is larger in, than life and brings chaos and destruction around them wherever they go. The Rolling Stones created that. Wow. Of that, of that dangerous rock and roll rebel. And, and so- is it true that Keith Richards has had, which is the uh, lead guitarist? Um, he is not the lead Oh. He's the rhythm guitarist. Anyway, Keith Richards, the rhythm guitarist, or at the very least a member of the band, has had multiple blood transfusions because of the amount of drugs he's done. He has had blood transfusions, but don't believe the story that he's had the entirety of his blood replaced. Okay. Because <laughs> that's what I've heard. That's not medically to... possible to transfuse the entirety of your blood. There is a there is a very famous rumor out there that he's uh, had a full blood transfusion as far as taking out all his existing blood and putting fresh blood in. No, that's not that's not medically possible. Okay. <laughs> but I'm I'm sure yes, he has had many transfusions over the years. Uh, Keith Richards might be rock and roll's greatest survivor. <laughs> it's it's un he's he's probably the only one that could outdo Ozzy and the, how are you still alive category as far as the amount of drugs he's taken. And the crazy thing I learned is that he still does drugs. What he he teaches and what he preaches is that drugs inherently aren't bad. Just don't be addicted to them. He still recreationally does drugs. He just says that he can control it and he's not addicted to it. I can quit whenever I want. Yep. He's, so, he's, he said that he's never had to go through the pain of trying to keep sober and clean. And because he's like, just because I know how to control it. Whether or not that's true, <laughs> another story. But hey, he's still alive. On that note, we should probably get into the members of the Rolling Stones and yep. kind of their brief early history and and meet that with where we are in our British invasion history. Well, we've already brought up the two most important members of the Rolling Stones. Yes. And the rhythm guitarist? Yes. He is not the lead guitarist, although he does play lead. Um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about in some of the songs, some of the places where he does play lead. But the reason why he is the popular member of the band is because he's the chief songwriter. Oh, so even though he's not playing, kind of in the same way that 
in Metallica, Kirk Hammett's not the songwriter, even though he's the lead guitarist. He's, you know, he's not coming up with the riffs. That's what Keith Richards does. He is, him and Mick Jagger are the primary songwriters, because obviously oh, Mick, wow. Jagger, Mick Jagger writes all the lyrics and is really an architect as far as arrangement, and Keith Richards is the main songwriter. Although it didn't initially start out that way. That kind of more evolved as time went. Um, Who else in is in the fact, band, really quick? Uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards are not even the founding members of the band. What? Oh, wow. The original founding member was their original lead guitarist, Brian Jones. He had a band that... um, Now, Mick and Keith were in a band together previously. So you could say that they have the longest musical relationship of anyone in the Stones. They've known each other since they were 10 years old. But... It, they both of them joined Brian Jones' band that became the Rolling Stones. So, really, you could say that it was Brian's band initially, and then Mick and Keith kind of hijacked it, which of course created some very bitter feelings for Brian because he felt that they were invading on what was his band. You know, they joined my band, and now they've asserted complete creative control from me. So um, both of them, both Keith and Mick, are still in the band today. That's another thing to point out is the fact that the Rolling Stones are the longest-running band in rock history. Like, they've also never broken up, ever. Oh, wow. They've never broken up and reunited. Like, if ever there's a break, it's always a hiatus. It's never a we're breaking up which is just incredible for the amount of time that they've been together. But there's a third member that has been with them since the beginning is still with them today. And that's drummer, Charlie Watts. Um, He's been with them on every album. He's still with them today. Those are the three members that started off in the band and have played on every album that are still there today. So what happened with Brian Jones then? So Brian Jones died in 1969. Okay. You could say that he's kind of the, even though he is not the first musician to, to be part of the 27 Club, he was really the first notable one. Again, like I said, they were known for creating the dangerous flux. Brian Jones was the first major 60s rock and roll star to die of a drug overdose. Hmm. Wow. Now, Technically, it's not the overdose that killed him. What happened was that he overdosed, passed out, and drowned in his pool. Ah, okay. And what they really, obviously, he really died by drowning. But he wouldn't have drowned had he not been exceedingly high. Um, So, but at the time that he had died, he had already been booted out of the band. He got booted out of his own band. Yeah, because of his excessive drug use. Oh, wow. And it's kind of like people laugh that how could Dave Mustaine get kicked out of Alcoholica for being too much of an alcoholic? Right. It's the same thing with Brian Jones getting kicked out of the Rolling Stones for being too much of a junkie. So was it kind of the same thing where it's like he would really abuse it and he was really addicted to it? 
Yeah, because at that time, the other members hadn't gotten deep into addiction. Like Keith Richards hadn't become the notorious junkie that he would become. That kind of happened more in the 70s. So um, Brian Jones was really kind of the first member of the band to get seriously into drugs. And, um, you know, the other members of the band definitely were dabbling at that time, but hadn't gotten into the the deep throes of it yet um brian jones did and of course it cost him his band that he had started as well as eventually his life which was very sad but yes he was kind of the original uh rock and roll star to be part of the in 27 club and of course you know right after him would be the big three of that group being jim morrison Jimi hendrix and janice joplin which all happened in about a year span between 70 and 71. But you could say that Brian Jones kind of kicked it off. Hmm. We have not talked about the bass player position yet. Yes, and that is Bill Wyman. Okay. Um, He is not currently with the band. He's retired. But he is the... um, he is their their long serving bassist, really a very underrated bassist. And then also have to talk about who Brian Jones' replacement was after he died because oh, some right, right. feature um, uh, this new guitar player, another Mick Mick Taylor. So you had you had Mick Jagger and Mick Taylor in the same band, but he uh, he was Brian Jones' replacement. But he didn't stay around for too long. He eventually would be replaced by Ronnie Wood in the mid seventies, and Ronnie Wood's been their guitar their lead guitar player ever since then. He's kind of their when you think of um, Rolling Stones lead guitar players, you either think of Brian Jones or Ronnie Wood. A lot of people forget about Mick Taylor. What happened to him? Uh, you know, I'm actually not quite sure because I haven't gotten to that point in the chronology. Hmm. There was so much happening in their first 10 years that I kind of stuck my focus into that. So right now where I left off, Mick Taylor is still in the band, but he's definitely not considered as one of their legacy band members, except for those that are Stones fans. They all love him. And he is a I hear some pretty mean key, like keys playing. Yes, that's always done by session studio musicians. Oh, wow. So they never had a full-time keyboardist in their band. Hmm. So that's, and, and you know, just sometimes um, when Brian Jones was in the band, a lot of times he would play any extra instruments that needed to be played. So he, when you look was, at the... He was kind of the musical genius of the band. Um, and he was the one that was, that would kind of push them away from their blues roots to try more experimental music. Really, you could say you could blame him the most for their very obvious Beatle chasing in the mid-60s, mm. where you could tell that they were trying to copy what the Beatles were doing. And it was once Brian Jones' influence had left that they that the Stones called what we would call their classic period. So when you see the Stones live and they play their songs that have keyboard parts is that still a, a session musician that's just yeah it, 
they have t- extra touring musicians that always accompany them. Okay. They're a band that's just them out there. They always bring extra guys with them. Okay. Because, you know, the, a lot of their songs will have horn parts in it or big choirs or, you know, they were they were a, a, a band that always employed whatever was needed. They didn't have a philosophy of whatever we play has to be played by us. Okay. You know, obviously they made sure that they were on there somewhere, that they were the focus. But if there was something that they needed that they couldn't do, they were not above getting what they needed in order to make the song what they wanted to make it. That makes sense. Considering what we've listened to, that makes sense. So I'm Uh curious about, tell me the story of the formation of the band up up to their first album. So, um, like I said. Actually, first off, how many albums did they make? Oh, gosh. Um, there's probably close to 30 at this point. 30? And he says oh, at this point because they're still going. Yeah. I mean, the, a new album came out last year. And they released a couple new singles this year. Like, they're they're never going to stop. I don't know. They're they're getting close to 80 at this point. Oh, my God. We talk, we talk about things going, oh, man, they're in their 60s. Some of them we talk about, oh, they're in their 70s. These guys are like 77, 78 years old. And it's the crazy thing is that Mick Jagger sounds exactly the same. His voice is identical to what it sounded like younger. And you can't say that about most singers when they get older. A lot of times their voice changes. Mick sounds exactly the same, and it's quite scary. But sorry, so... Formation of the band to the first album, and then we can go from there on however many albums we're talking about today. So, like I said, um, Keith and Mick had known each other for a long time and had been in different bands together. How old were they and, at this point? Um, by the time that they started really taking music seriously, it was about when they were 17, 18 years old. Okay. And um, again, they wanted to stay. They wanted to stick to very pure blues. Um, Mick Jagger was a hardcore blues expert. Like, he was someone that would, you know, order all of the obscure blues albums from America. And just like, he he didn't just know the blues classics, he knew the blues deep cuts. Mm-hmm. Like, he was, it was just, it was what gave him inspiration. And he Keith was- felt the same way. That was their initial bonding because that was not as cool of a thing to be into in England. They bent more towards the the pop uh like rock and roll. Again, the the Elvis and the Chuck Berry and of course, you know, of course they were inspired by it, but they were more inspired by artists like Bo Diddley and Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf. In fact, um that's where the name Rolling Stones comes from is from a Muddy Waters song hmm. called Rolling Stone. And so they, and that was originally not supposed to be the name of the band. They just couldn't think of anything better at the time. And so that was a placeholder name. And then it just stayed around. (laughs) So there's not like any like deep significance as to why did they call it? It was just literally uh, a a holdover name. And then they never thought of anything better. So they're like, well, people are starting to know us now as the Rolling Stones. I guess we'll continue to be the Rolling Stones. So even their name itself spoke to their obsession with true blues. Hmm. 
And so, um, and so that was kind of what initially stood out to them as, and as well as that's what Brian Jones was into. That's what led them to their band. And then when they met Brian, they were just like, Hey, let's form, let's form a true authentic blues band and do the type of blues that we've heard our heroes do. And so kind of their, their initial plan was not to become the biggest band in the world because they didn't want to sell out and become commercial. Yeah. They just, uh, they, they wanted to, if they got big, great. But the whole point was they weren't going to do what the Beatles were doing. They weren't going to, you know, chase the number one billboard hit, which is ironic because they ended up having six of them. <laughs> but, if, you know, really, they all those six ones they did on their own terms. It's pretty amazing. Um, but they that was that was really where it started out. And then if you listen to their first couple of records, most of them are covers. And they're just covering, you know, blues classics as well as more blues deep cuts that they felt like the public needs to hear. They were very much ones that were that were like blues doesn't get the attention or the respect it deserves. And we're going to introduce it to a wider audience. And that was the basis of what the Rolling Stones were. Hmm. And it was on their third album that they kind of started to really have their first successful uh, commercial crossover. Um, that was the the album Out of Our Heads that had the hit Satisfaction, which ended up becoming their first number one hit in America. And so once that happened, it was kind of they, they tasted that sweet success and they're like, okay, we, I think we like this. And they started to pursue it. And that's really when the hits started to come around. And once you hit about 65, 66, you can tell that they're at this point really chasing the Beatles. Of course, they're always branding it in their own way. But you can tell that when the Beatles do something revolutionary, they try and make their own version of it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they it worked. There, I would say there's a couple of instances where they did outdo the Beatles at whatever they were trying to accomplish. Other times, it failed miserably. And we'll see that very obviously when we talk about our worst songs. You can hear where they were really trying to be the Beatles, and it's just like, guys, it's it's not working here. And um, you can you can feel as we get into the summer of love, which we've talked about a number of times now. Hopefully, whenever I say the summer of love, you guys know what I mean by that. Yeah. Um, that that summer of '67, when really the classic rock period fully begins, and you have the um, you have the all of these experimental rock groups really starting to come out like the doors and Jimi Hendrix and Pink Floyd, as well as the existing um, rock artists really pivoting artistically to try and keep up with the times, the who start to get more experimental. Obviously the Beatles um, go in a much more experimental psychedelic realm and the Rolling Stones are no exception. And really, this is where, in a couple of rare instances, they make some truly great pieces of music. 
but most of the time it doesn't feel right. It feels like they're extending out past what they're good at. They were never meant to be the experimental um, studio reaching wizards that the Beatles were. They benefited more from a pure, rebellious, dangerous rock and roll. And it took a big flop like their album, Their Satanic Majesty's Request, in order to kind of snap them out of that, out of that chase. And whenever that the next album in 68, Beggar's Banquet, comes out, that's the beginning of what's called the, the classic period, which is a five-album run of or wait let me a four album run of maybe one of the best runs that any band in history has ever had this is this is when you think of rolling stones you typically think of that period from 68 to 72 and that includes um beggar's banquet let it bleed sticky fingers and exile on main street and that's really where the stones legacy is built upon that's where the majority of their great songs were written and it's really where they honed in on what specifically their sound was and that is a true honest soulful yet dangerous rock and roll um a thing that they never lost is this this connection to soul music and black music um they always had this um they had this emotion in their songs that they were able to always kind of tap into. And it always had this, this soulful approach to it. But at the same time, they knew how to get down and get dirty. They have, they have some of the swankiest riffs that are very simple, but man, do they pack a lot of punch. Mm -hmm. And pretty much that's kind of, we're not exclusively for this episode pinning ourselves in the classic period. We have a couple songs on our list. I'd say it's half and half before the classic period and during the classic period. But I intentionally set out with our set list to not have any one song from the same album. Ooh. I wanted to have a very wide array to choose from to kind of show as many different sides of the band as I could. And then when we do future episodes on them, we'll concentrate on, on specific eras of the band. So would you say that that classic period occurred because they no longer had the Beatles to chase? No, because the Beatles were still around in 68. Um, they still released about three more albums after uh, the Rolling Stones alternated their approach. Really, I think... Um, I think they, their Satanic Majesties was a big flop. They were counting on it to be a worthy competitor to the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper, which came out the same year. Mm -hmm. uh, even down to the album art, it's very, you can tell that they're, they're, that's what they're trying to capture. And um, it didn't yield them any hits. It sold pretty, I mean, it initially sold very well, but then it tapered off very quickly. Because obviously a Rolling Stones record will always start off strong, but they definitely, uh, it didn't have legs. I think seeing that that album wasn't successful, as well as um, Brian Jones' influence as lead songwriter of the band was really starting to disappear at this point. 
and I and I'm I really believe that he was the pri- he's not the, he wasn't the only one, but I think he was the primary one that was really trying to occupy the same musical space that the Beatles were, as far as because he had the ability, he had this insane ability to pick up any instrument and master it instantly. And because of that, he was the one that was constantly getting all these unique, bizarre-sounding instruments like the Beatles were, mm-hmm. putting them on their records. And I I believe that he was, he was still on Beggar's Banquet, which was like the first one of that revival, but he has a very small um, contribution to it. Uh, Keith Richards plays most rhythm and lead tr- guitar on that album. Because just it was it was kind of a transitional time. They also Brian Jones was just not coming into the studios often because he was usually high somewhere. That'll do. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, they were they were heading. The Beatles were still around. Now it did help them that the Beatles were fracturing. They hadn't lost any of their popular appeal because I mean, literally right up to the end, the Beatles were still snatching up number ones like it was going out of style. <laughs> um, but I think that they saw that the Beatles' time was getting close because it was in 68 is the time when they started to splinter personally. And um, I think that they saw that this was their opportunity to kind of have a break. And really what they did is they just they concentrated on making their music. When you listen to um those the first couple albums in that classic period there's just this there's this confidence in their songwriting that they know exactly what they want to write and they know exactly what's going to work for them there's this immediate um this ownership of just going we are the rolling stones and this is what our music is we're not going to try and sound like anyone else we're going to be us and it, you're going to love it they even, in 1970, when the Beatles broke up, they started introducing themselves on tour as the greatest rock and roll band in the world. And at that yeah. point, definitely claim it. Okay. Well, all right. Well, that's a, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty succinct history right there of where we are now, at least. And there's you said they're still going, so they're on like album thirty, and they took hiatuses in between, right? Yeah, like at the time when that album came out last year, it was their first one in like fifteen years. But during that time, obviously, they did tons of tours, and you know, they've the Rolling Stones have never stopped, even though maybe they're not always making albums; they're always up to something. Okay. It's, you know, and, they've, and they've all. Like, they'll even still ask them today. I was just like, do you have any plans for retiring? Nope. <laughs> they do just keep rolling. Retire? Nope. We're going to keep doing it as long as it feels good, as long as we want to. And literally, I, I, I think they'll do it until they physically, their bodies won't let them anymore. And then they'll do it a couple more times, and then they'll actually stop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> for real. But, I mean, they absolutely are next like i said the beatles while they are the greatest band of all time you could say that definitely their mark is more definitive on pop than it is on rock even though 
they have several incredibly invaluable contributions to rock and roll. And you would really say they are a rock and roll group. You could also say that they're a pop group as well, because really when you listen to a lot of their stuff, you hear them writing pop music, modern pop music. And the Rolling Stones, I would say, did the equivalent to rock and roll. So let's kind of frame that then as far as like their context in rock and roll history. Who came immediately after that was so influenced by the Rolling Stones that you'd go so far as to say that the Rolling Stones kind of changed the genre? Um, I would say probably you wouldn't have Led Zeppelin without the Rolling Stones. They kind of tr- continued that um, that blues-infused rock and roll and took mm-hmm. it to the next level. They kind of right. were... A- they kind of were a combination of the Beatles and the Stones, where they they followed the Stones, um, you know, dedication to the blues, but then also took the Beatles' radical experimentalism. That is true. <laughs> uh, I would say, I would really say that any rock and roll band that is blues-centered and is not blues centered in the same way that they rely on 12 bar blues but like you know you can just tell when a when you hear a blues artist or a blues song like it just it has that feeling to it Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. that you can really say that the stones really allowed for rock and roll to be bluesy without having to be tied to the 12 bar blues that they were kind of able to take it past that and go, okay, we're going to take the feeling and the attitude of blues and we're going to mix it with rock and roll. And really you can say that any blues based rock and roll group has to thank the stones for their own existence because they did it first. (laughs) Probably Led Zeppelin would be the most obvious example of that. And of course, you know, Led Zeppelin's one of the most important bands of all time. That's true. Yeah. I don't think anyone would uh would deny that. So, um Yeah. That's the that's the stones for you. <laughs> cool. That is a lot. That <laughs> is a lot. That is a lot. I could probably we, have... we don't have to. <laughs> Because we'll have many more episodes to kind of get into even more of the details. Yes, yes. But we have songs to talk about now. Yes, we do. So we're going to take a small break here. When we come back, we're going to talk about the six songs that we've picked for this episode. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. episode of the good music podcast is brought to you by southern safe rooms when severe weather threatens you want the maximum protection for you and those you love if an intruder forces their way into your home you need a secure space for you and your family to take shelter in order to stay safe if you want a secure place to store your guns guitars or other valuables like drums A custom shelter is the solution you need. 
Southern Safe Rooms builds custom certified safe rooms that can be installed in your home, garage, workshop, or anywhere you have a concrete reinforced slab. Southern Safe Rooms builds all of our safe rooms in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and can install them on any reinforced concrete slab. The Southern Safe Rooms custom storm shelters can withstand wind speeds of up to 250 miles per hour. Southern Safe Rooms have been tested by Texas Tech University and are built to exceed FEMA standards to withstand an EF5 tornado. The Southern Certified Safe Room is constructed with the highest quality materials, far exceeding conventional storm shelter construction. With over 110 years, count them, of steel manufacturing experience, Southern Safe Rooms knows how to build a secure shelter for your home. Call 918-584-3371 or visit our website, southernsaferooms.com. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking about the Rolling Stones and their significance to rock and roll history. And now it is time to talk about the six songs that we have selected for this episode. So for those of you who are new, welcome. And you might be wondering why we have six songs. We just talked about the Rolling Stones. Why are we going to talk about their music? I should go listen to the Rolling Stones music for myself. Well, Lucas, could you explain to those people what the purpose of this segment really is? This is to introduce to you or those of you that are not familiar with the Rolling Stones to their music. So the way that I'm picking these songs is I'm not just picking what are their six most popular songs, although a lot of their popular songs are on this list, but it's not, that's not my criteria. I'm also not just picking what are my six favorite Rolling Stones songs? No, I am picking them based on what's going to give you the best first impression to introduce you to them as a band. And I um, I also pick these songs in such a way to where they flow together, that there is a consistency in the way that they transition to um, them leading you on an emotional journey to where eventually at the end there is a uh, an emotional uh, catharsis. So I try and make sure that the songs transition well off each other, that they're leading somewhere. And so that's kind of my criteria to introduce you to the band and to give you a great emotional uh, ride throughout the set. And the way that you can go listen to these songs is there is a link in the description of the episode that will take you to a Spotify playlist that has not just the songs on this episode, but all the songs from our previous episodes as well. So even if you have heard these songs many times before, please go check them out and listen to them because I – when you listen to them in the order that I put them in, you always glean a new appreciation. Um, you guys can attest to that of having songs that you previously were indifferent or maybe even not liked. And then hearing them in the context of the set, um, your opinion has changed of them. So uh, I highly recommend to make sure that you go listen to them. But we're going to go ahead and get started with um, the first song in our set. And one thing I'll also put in is that as part of search, I always like to take the artist's discography and rank them from worst to best. And so you'll also hear me talking about where I would put each song in a definitive ranking of their songs. 
So, so we're gonna start with a a burner of a song. Truly an a boxer. Oh yes, uh, I I love starting off sets where you have a lyric that is like greeting the listener. I've always I've always liked that. Like uh, mm-hmm. when we did our um, our Peter Gabriel episode, starting off with Big Time and him just saying hi there. And, um, you know, like uh, having in our episode last week of Bruce Springsteen with Thunder Road, that's it's meant to be an invitation to go along a journey with Bruce Springsteen. And so uh, having this song, this set start off with the line, please allow me to introduce myself, I think is is really fun to do for the first song of a set. Because, you know, in the same way that, you know, we're introducing the listener to this artist, the artist is introducing himself to the listener. And I think that that creates a cool little um, atmosphere. Yeah. By the way, this song is sympathy for the devil. Yes. So I thought that this song was pretty clever. Oh yeah. I think, what do you mean? And how it was written like lyrically or. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, I would say that this is their best lyric they've ever come up with, and this is my favorite Stones song. Really, this was the song that made me fall in love with the Stones. Is your favorite song. out of the set? It's my favorite in the set. It's my favorite song of theirs. Period, and I put it at number one on the ranked playlist. <laughs> wow, this is number one. So we're, we're yeah, we're getting we're getting everything up front. Right here with my opinion. Okay, it's only. Uh, But I would say this song, this this is a masterpiece uh, recording. That is just lyrically and musically. I think that this is just brilliant. This is one of rock's greatest creations. And this is during their classic period too. Yes, and really, this is the song that starts. Well, I guess kind of starts off their classic period because it's the first song on that album. Mm-hmm. But there was a single from that album that they released beforehand. This was the second single off of the album. Yeah. Uh, the first, and really there was even a, 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 a non-album single that came out before that that really kind of stones were back to what their, they went back to basics pretty much and just kind of really focused on great succinct rock songwriting. Uh, Jumping Jack Flash was kind of like the beginning of the the Rolling Stones returned to the top, and then Street Fighting Man came out after that, which was off of the Beggar's Banquet record, and then they released Sympathy for the Devil, which really became the the big song on the album. Gotcha, gotcha. And this probably didn't help with their well, not that they were trying to help, but with the the reputation of the. Oh yeah, they boys. they they were a band. Remember how we talked about it with ACDC that. They were indifferent on whether they were shocking. They just wanted to write the yeah. songs that they write. Not so with the Stones. They knew exactly what they were doing and what kind of reaction they were going to get, and they fed off of it. So you know they they knew, especially coming off of an album called Their Satanic Majesty's Request, they had already started to gather a reputation of potentially being Satanists. And, you know, of course, whenever they were asked point blank, are you a Satanist? They'd be like, no, we're not Satanists. But, you know, they would definitely be intentionally 
um, mischievous in order to court uh, drama and attention because they knew that that's that it created a perfect uh, opposite to what the Beatles were, even though the Beatles at that time were also shedding their innocent look and behavior. Uh, they definitely were still always considered the the good boys and the and the stones fed into being the bad boys. Um, and Mick Jagger's thinking was, well, people accuse me of being the devil already. Why don't I write a song from his perspective <laughs> and actually become this 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 character that they accuse me of being? So of course, you know he he kind of enjoyed it. He enjoyed being. Um, being called all these different things and and you know offending everybody like he was just kind of like yeah bring it on he always had this he had this the the jagger swagger as i guess you could call where he just he took everything in such great stride and he just nothing phased him he always was ready so is that what this song is lyrically about yes this album or not the album, the song is definitely um, from the perspective of Satan himself. But that makes and, it sound really, like, hardcore. Yeah, especially for 1968. It's kind of amazing that a song like this um, could be made at that time. That's true. Again, like, I think I, the lyrics are, are clever. I don't think that the lyrics are are that brash. No, they're they're tame by today's standards, but for 1968, that was a this was a startling song to hear. Yeah, especially coming on the tail end of the love and peace summer of love. <laughs> 68 was a pretty bleak year in comparison. Um, everyone in 67 that thought that peace and love would would triumph overall realized in 68 that things weren't working as well as the fact that they started to realize that acid was probably not good yeah yeah. and um you can hear a difference in the music from 67 everything is bright psychedelic flowery and once you get to um once you get to 68 you can really say that that's kind of the year that hard rock was born and eventually leading to heavy metal, like everything's pretty heavy and dark in 68. Hmm. Like kind of that optimism is gone. And I think that sympathy for the devil really kind of feeds into that because really the whole song is the devil presenting himself kind of as innocent because he's every time he, um, he mentions something, he actually is not, doing anything he's saying that he's behind it all but really at the end of the day man is is um creating all of these atrocities mm. and so he's he's saying i'm watching all this happen but at the same time i'm really happy that this is happening because at the end of the day i'm the one responsible but you know i'm doing i'm i have this influence over man indirectly and um, he presents himself as this this man of class, a man of wealth and taste. Yeah. And I think that it's very interesting that immediately, because like you don't know what the perspective is in the first line. He's introducing himself. You can think that he's just you know this narrator, 
And then immediately in the first verse goes to, I was around when Jesus Christ had his moment of doubt and pain, made damn sure that Pilate washed his hands and sealed his fate. Immediately, you know that that can only be one person, and that's the devil. Yeah, He shows his hand instantly. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not one of those things to where as the song is building, you're starting to figure out more and more who it is. He just tells you straight up front, I was there at, at Jesus' death. That was me. I was responsible for that. Yeah. And immediately you realize, oh, we're talking to the devil. Yep. And he and then this whole this this almost this goading, this um this boasting of pleased to meet you, won't you guess my name? Yeah. Name so so sinister. Like he's he's like he's daring you. Come on, say my name. It reminds me so much of Breaking Bad. Yep. That scene i think maybe the best scene of the entire show um where he's in the desert and he goes on that big say my name monologue and then he's he's getting them to say his name and they won't do it and then he starts telling him everything that he's done i'm the man that killed gus Fring, all that I will, i'll try not to spoil anything but that's kind of the, the climax of the heisenberg character arc is you know him telling them say my name and finally they say it and that amazing line that i won't say because i'm trying to keep this family friendly <laughs> but everyone knows the line that mm-hmm. he says it's, just, it's like you you feel like that that's what the devil's uh attitude is here he's trying to he's he's describing everything that he's behind and then he's just like come on say my name say my name come on you know who i am mm-hmm and then he starts to go through this laundry list of all the atrocities um, that have happened over the years. He talks about um, stuck around St. Petersburg, uh, killed the czar and his ministers, you know, the, the whole Bolshevik revolution. I rode a tank in a general's rank when the Blitzkrieg reigned and the bodies stank. Again, just I can't believe they got away with this in <laughs> 1968. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, talking about Hitler's invasion of Poland in the Blitzkrieg, mm-hmm. um, he talks about the Hundred Years' War. I watched with glee while your kings and queens fought for den- ten decades over the gods they made. I shouted out who killed the Kennedys, which when they originally wrote that, only John F. Kennedy had been killed. And mm-hmm. a couple – like two days before they were set to record the final take, uh, Robert Kennedy got assassinated, so he quickly sh- – changed it to Kennedy's and it made it to where when it came out, that was very fresh on people's minds. Yeah. And so he's just, he's laying out all the things that he ultimately you can trace back to him, even though the thing that he's really getting at is just going, you know, I didn't do any of these things though. I'm glad they happened and I'm the influence behind it, but really these things are your fault. Yeah. He when says, he says, well, after all it was you and me, you know, Mm-hmm. he's saying you're you're just as much responsible as i am you, you know i didn't personally kill the czar i didn't come in human flesh and do that you did it you know you killed the kennedys you um uh formed the nazi party and and ravished europe you know at the end of the day man is completely to blame but you know i don't want you guys to take all the credit <laughs> That is kind of clever. So, so and then yeah, and then 
then of course it leads into the big climax of him just repeatedly telling saying you what's my name what's my name and i just think that he at this point there's this glee this 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 evil glee of kind of just reveling in his in his evil and his chaos yeah it's almost but and like i love that the tune is like happy you know it's almost like but then <laughs> Yeah, and then but you also have this this tribal beat that they intentionally wanted to give this this sinister rhythm to kind of have this this very um, exotic sound, you know, because there's really not any pure drums in this song. Um, it's mostly you know congas and bongos and and more percussion instruments rather than a drum set. Right. Uh, musically, I think that this song is so unique. It's very different for a rock song. They do this brilliant job of not adding in instruments. They really don't um, do a lot musically to increase the stakes that you feel the instruments getting bigger as the song goes. I think that this is a brilliant um, use of just... Um, Good old-fashioned dynamics. Yeah, but dynamics that are done very subtly. Right. And they do it for six minutes. Which, yeah. Which it's... I, I just now looked at the time for this song. It doesn't feel like six minutes, but it's like they fill the whole six minutes with lyrics and solo and build. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't get old. No. I mean, this, you kind of you get to the end, it's just like, oh, I, I would be happy if this kept going. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, one of the other really standout parts of this is the guitar solos. Um, I think I I really love what they did with this, that really fuzzed out searing guitar tone. Mm-hmm. I think that it does a real good job of kind of catching you off guard. Yeah. And, um, it's, and this is Keith Richards playing because, again, at this during this record, um, Brian Jones is really – um he he he's credited with playing acoustic guitar on this song but it's so pushed down in the mix that you can't even hear it <laughs> so it's just like they've they've completely removed him and everything but position in the band and i think that that's pretty hilarious <laughs> um well i guess not hilarious because obviously it ended in tragedy but you know what i mean like you can tell that in their mind brian jones is not in the band <laughs> Another thing that's interesting is that Keith Richards does also play bass on this song. Hmm. So he really took melodic control over a lot of pieces in this song. It, and that's not a that's not a typical thing where he'll do stuff like that. Mm, depending on it's kind of depends on the on the situation. Okay, so it it's known to kind of a man, yeah. So um but yeah, I, I, what do you guys think of the the guitar solos in this song? I agree with you. I think the tone the tone is nice. Yeah, it's it's. I feel like it's a tone that would on paper be a bad tone. Oh yeah, and it's not you would want to hear in other songs. But I think they could, did a good job of identifying that it would be really good for this song. I'm very curious, Grant, for your opinion, since you're the guitar player. Of the I, de- group. I definitely think the guitar tone is super, like, you're right. On paper, it's terrible. But 
there's a lot of guitar tones that are very famous that on paper are terrible. Um, and and it's like, obviously, this is 1968, so it's not like we're shredding all over the place. You can kind of hear some repeated licks, but it that's that's also kind of part of that soul kind of blues thing of of finding a lick and then, you know, keep harping on it, right? Because that repetition, you know, you kind of play it a little different each time. I, I think that knowing that they have that history of trying to follow the blues and whatever, um, it starts to make more sense now knowing. Uh-huh. It's this is a very bluesy guitar passage. Right. The whole the whole thing. Very just he's not trying to show speed. Yeah. And that's that's never really right what their goal is whenever they play. They're not, you know, like a not even like a Led Zeppelin, which you could say are kind of their predecessors, which are known for very complex, fast passages at times. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that was never their thing. I, mean, I do believe that they could do it if they wanted to. It's just not. It's not who they are as a band. They're they're not a very tight band, and I think that this song kind of shows that that's not what they enjoy. The yeah, least. it's not what. Because if you think about this type of th- uh, bleh, this type of song for a much tighter band like Dream Theater or Pantera would would not would be completely the way it would be played, the way it would be composed would be completely different. The instrumentation would be completely different. They just I find you know they just I, they aren't like that. Yeah, I find that it's very interesting when you hear people cover this song. Oh, Gino because cover, yeah, yeah, Guns N' Roses and Motorhead has a cover of this oh, song really? too. It's actually things they released before Lemmy died. Um, and when these other bands cover it, they most of them are much tighter bands. Even though you know whether you would say that Motorhead is a tight band or not, they're the they're more lighter. Yeah, they're they're tied in the Rolling Stones. Guns N' Roses is tied in the Rolling Stones, and so hearing and they usually never take the uh, the the percussion approach with the drums. They always do it with a natural drum kit and it never feels right. Like, obviously you listen to us. It's like, okay, yeah, that's a cool cover, but you know, there's, you kind of lose a bit of the, um, a bit of the charm whenever you, whenever you tighten it up and kind of make it more authentic band. I think Mm -hmm. the strength of the song is the fact that it's so uniquely played and written that like you can't really recreate it in a traditional sense. Hmm. So, um, but yeah, I think that this is um, lyrically. I think that this is such a fun song. Like, you know, you kind of you listen to it and you're just kind of like, especially when you realize he's starting to cite all of these, you know, atrocities. You kind of think I was just like, okay, what's he going to talk about next? Yeah. There's kind of a suspense, so I I think that I think that this is def I think this is their best song. But it, you you would almost think, well, then I must be downhill from here, and that's that's far from the truth. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, maybe in your opinion, but in mine, I think we don't get to the best place till the end. Ah, okay. Which is a which is a change for me. Another another change. Change of opinion on a song. 
Oh, okay. So, but we'll have to get there, obviously. Uh, any more thoughts, Ethan? Mm-mm. I think I'm ready. All right. It's time for the next one. Probably the biggest Stone song of all. And one that whenever we're starting off with the Rolling Stones, you can't not have this right. song. And that's I Can't Get No Satisfaction. A song that Rolling Stone magazine put at number two of best songs of all time. The Rolling Stone magazine. Feels a little biased. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, but I understand, I understand why. And I'm going to explain why I, why I think that that's not a stretch. I put it at number four on the on the playlist. Um, this is the true beginning of classic rock, and I think that that's the the argument that the that they're making. That um, that really, when this came out in '65, it didn't sound like any of the other rock and roll songs of that time. This was. This doesn't have the same cheerfulness and poppiness of what the Beatles were doing. Even And 65 was the year that the Beatles started to shift towards their more mature mm-hmm. period. But even still, they hadn't written anything dark or edgy yet. And even though this is a you know a pretty tame song sounding compared to the rest of most classic rock, this is this is probably at the time the the edgiest rock song that had ever been written because you know the the song is the lyrics are all about frustration there's no sweet love song there's no um you know i love you won't you be my girl um please hold my hand yeah. <laughs> you know you really got to hold on me it's you know, he's saying, I can't get no satisfaction. Hmm. And um, what you really see whenever you're um, looking at the lyrics is this. He's really just talking about his dissatisfaction with society in general. So this isn't even a, about a girl. He's not saying he's getting no satisfaction from a girl. So you could really say that this is kind of like the first rock song to go outside of the subject of love. Hmm. hmm. Even before the Beatles did it, as well as man, what a what a menacing and just er, revolutionary sounding guitar line. One of the greatest rock and roll riffs ever, and definitely one of the most well known and most popular. And it it plays off of the uh, the normal blues riffing, mm-hmm. which I had noticed when I you know was first kind of like thinking about this song music theory wise um but it, it it starts to make so much sense now in a weird way i wish we could have the first section of this you know the podcast before we listen to the songs even start listening because there's so many things that i think i would pick up on more that even like the little stuff like how those those notes for the satisfaction riff are just are totally just the blues notes I think there's a lot more that that maybe going back and listening to it that I'll that I'll pick up on. Which we're only in the second song and I'm already saying that, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, um this was their first number one hit, so obviously this was the song that really got them 
on the path to stardom. Um, they uh, this song came to that riff came to Keith Richards in a dream, and I find it's always oh, wow. very fascinating. You know how the best songs always happen like that. Like Paul McCartney wrote, like came up with the idea melodically for yesterday in a dream, and he woke up and was sure that it was a song that had already been written because he said the melody was so good that there's no way that this hadn't been written yet. Hmm. And and then asked around for several weeks because he didn't want to accidentally plagiarize because he's like, surely this song exists. And asked a bunch of people and they were like, no, this song doesn't exist. He was like, okay, then I'll write it. <laughs> it was uh, one of the biggest hits of all time. <laughs> yeah, it it's the most it's got the statistic for being the most covered song of all time wow so you could definitely say that it's one of the most but kind of same instance with um uh satisfaction that it just it came to him in a dream and he woke up and he had a little tape recorder beside him and so he played it real quick because he knew he would forget it by morning and so he put on the tape recorder then went back to sleep and then brought it to the studio. It's just like, hey, I got this little riff here. Uh, let's see if it's any good. And right at the time they were about to record it, um, the first fuzz boxes started to become, um, become were starting to be made. And so there's like, ooh, this would give a great little extra texture to the song. I don't think the guitar line would have as much power if not for the effect that's on nope. it. Nope. Not even close. I think that um, it it really um, it really benefits from that sound, and I think that that's what gives it its iconic status. So, really, they wrote the song at the right time that they could have that um, working in their favor. Right. This song came out. This not only was their first big hit, but this really got them in trouble with a lot of the parents and the religious leaders and pretty much all of the working class middle America. Because mm -hmm. they assumed that this song was about um, self-love, which how they p pulled that is a mystery. Uh, I mean, I guess it's like you could really stretch it to try and uh, to try and make that work, but really, you could also say this is the beginning of another storied rock and roll tradition of of over analyzing songs to try and get a evil message out of it, a corrupting message. When really, that is not at all what was being said. How many times has that happened in rock and roll history? All of the time. never. <laughs> never never wow i mean that's that's, that's one of never the... happened a single time yeah okay that's for those of you listening that's called sarcasm <laughs> <laughs> um you're telling me that someone would purposefully falsify the meaning of something else how is that possible i, I know i'm sure like I'm sure at the, at the at the early onset it was not um, on purpose for some of these songs. I mean, because because think about other instances, right? Like "Number of the Beast" by Iron Maiden. Like that's 
that at first glance is going to be like, whoa, definitely a satanic song. And then you're going to shy away from looking at the lyrics because it's like, oh, I know what it's about. When in reality, you don't. Well, at the end, like in the in the one of the last courses that says, I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no girl reaction. Yeah. And then in the last so what, verse, it talks about pursuing a girl. In the in the first bit, it does talk about the media on TV, like telling you useless stuff, trying to make you angry. And then there's one about the second verse is more about advertisements. And then the third verse first is about a woman that he can't yeah. um, woo. I guess would be the uh-huh. pretty much what the uh, the whole point of the song is is his dissatisfaction with america yeah and you know because obviously like i said uh, up until and after the beatles conquered america like it was seen as the holy grail we gotta we gotta get america is gonna be the greatest thing that ever happened to yeah the promised land yeah and then he's their first american tour went pretty badly because they didn't have the hits yet that the Beatles had and they didn't have the charm and they um, rock and roll wasn't quite ready to embrace the bad guys yet and so they were definitely kind of outcasts they were always viewed as the 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 discount Beatles (laughs) in fear them in every way in looks and dress and songs and performance and attitude and so they were, you know, they did not have a great first experience in America. And so that's likely what he's talking about is just his going to America and just like it is not at all what it's cracked up to be. I'm not getting any kind of satisfaction from here. That's, and that's so, a lot more history than I thought there would be. Yeah. I mean, the Rolling Stones are not as deep lyrically as Bruce Springsteen, but oh, they typically they typically don't just like talk about very um, surface level things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I think this um, song is a. I, there's one thing I'd like to talk about about this song, and also kind of about music in general. Did the repetition of the guitar line, like, tell me your guys' thoughts on it. I think that it's perfect for the song. I think that it, it creates this, it creates this trance. This, this, it's almost hypnotic. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. You kind of, you kind of just get like, it's what lures you into the song. Mm-hmm. And then, and then it hits you with that chorus. Right, beat. Because it's it's it almost the song doesn't feel complete. It feels like like it's good. It feels doesn't feel complete until you get to the chorus, and then everything musically makes sense. And then you know, as Mick Jagger keeps his kind of like almost ranting style lyrics, it there's something to stay grounded in, so it doesn't just sound like a, a recital. You know what I mean? Because had uh-huh. had you have that you know, vocal style over something else, it would have sounded like absolute trash. But because it's rooted in that eternal, you know, riff, 
it sounds like a cohesive thought. Yeah. At least for yeah. the ears, right? Which he really doesn't he doesn't really sing. Not really. The only really instance of singing is in the I can't get no satisfaction. Mm-hmm. That's really the only time you've got intelligible pitches. And then after that, yeah, it's kind of more of a yelling uh, in, in pitch. <laughs> which again was not normal for rock and roll at that time and would become very normal for rock and roll. So again, you can really feel that this song is laying the groundwork. And whenever you listen to rock and roll radio, most of the time, what they consider to be classic rock is anything from 67 onward. If you ever hear any Beatles songs on rock radio, you typically will mostly hear things from 67, 68, 69, 70. You don't hear a lot of their early Beatlemania stuff. Um, you don't really hear a lot of early Who stuff. You don't hear a lot of early um, Kink stuff. Like, But the Stones, really, the, all of their stuff, the, regardless of how early it is, always gets played on rock radio. And Satisfaction is one of probably the most played songs on rock radio, and it precedes most other rock radio songs by at least two years. Mm. And I think that that's interesting. I haven't heard a single song earlier than Satisfaction ever played on classic rock radio. Somehow, even in 65, that song fits with the next 30 years of rock and roll. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that I think it's because of that, because it's it's the first time when rock and roll feels like rock and roll and doesn't feel like the 50s version of rock and roll. Again, as as great as the Beatles were doing, they weren't as much writing those rock and roll songs. They were writing great pop songs. Right. Yeah. This was the first I think this was the first true rock and roll song. And I and I that I believe that's why they put it on number on their greatest songs list. Is because you can hear that this is the point where rock and roll became rock and roll, and it's in the way that we know it now. It's not like they predicted it either. It's like they caused it. They were the reason that it is what it is today. Mm-hmm. That's why it's so reflective of everything that came after. Yeah. So. So. You know, if you're, we're slowly just continuing to answer the question: Why are they regarded in the same level as the Beatles? I think we're starting to really understand now, especially when you got a song like Satisfaction. Right. Again, just so early in Rock's formation to have a song that is still considered one of the great Rock songs ever is pretty... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty great to have. Yeah. It's true. Well, um... If you guys don't have anything else, we can go on to the next song. Next song. I've had a lot of satisfaction talking about satisfaction. It's on. <laughs> I am satisfied. So now let's get to uh, Can You Hear Me Knocking? So, Ethan, you, you had said something interesting about this song whenever we were kind of just bantering in our between our segments and Bruce Springsteen episode. Yeah, I, or maybe it was on After Hours. I think it was, yeah, right at the beginning of After Hours. We were talking about it. I, 
and and maybe a lot of listeners feel the same like can't you hear me knocking was one of those songs where it's like i knew it and and same with um same with it was the same with satisfaction um but i it's a song it's like i knew it but I didn't know that it was the Rolling Stones. I, I think I said that I thought it was like a band that had like a one hit wonder and then like vanished off the face of the earth. And But I thought the same about Paint It Black. And I thought the same about Satisfaction. <laughs> I was like, who are all these random bands that, that you know, <laughs> and I just didn't put together that it was all the same band. Yeah. Uh, this man, this song is just, is so cool. And I don't say that in cool. It's just like, man, that's awesome. Like, it's just, it's so, like, it has such a swagger to it. It's true. That opening guitar line just has so much attitude to it. You kind of can't help but put your stank face on as soon as you hear it. Yeah. Um, this is from Sticky Fingers, which is um, their first album from the 70s. And is right smack dab in the middle of their classic period. And um, this album was really their album that finally got them the biggest band in America. Um, even though, obviously, they had had number ones in America, they were they were still always overshadowed by what the Beatles were doing. As well as, you know, there were other bands in America that were kind of getting a lot of the attention. Um, Sticky Fingers was a um, was a was kind of the the big turning point as far as making them not just biggest rock band in Europe, but the biggest band everywhere. Mm -hmm. That was it was a massive record for them. Uh, particularly the big song of that album being Brown Sugar, which was one of their U.S. number Wait, ones. Wait, that's a Rolling Stones song? Yep. Wow. I know. I see what you mean. So much song, so many songs. I had actually, I had never, mm -hmm. I never heard "Can't You Hear Me Knocking" before, but I have heard Brown it, Sugar before. Yeah, that's 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 one of their all-time biggest songs, and it's one we'll definitely include on a future episode. Oh, good. Um, but this, this is a bit more of a deeper cut, but I think that this song is the best song on that album. I put it number five on the ranked playlist. This is my favorite in the set. Really? Mm-hmm. That extended jam section is perfection. I forgot that it existed whenever I was listening through to it. And so I was just like going through. I've actually started like reading the lyrics as I've listened. Like, there's this point where I'll like sit down and listen to the song and read the lyrics as I go through, which is the traditional way of listening to albums because that's they would always be printed on the album sleeve, and so that was always what you were intended to do: is to sit down with your headphones on, put the record on the turntable, and read the lyrics as you're listening. <laughs> that's kind of the, that's that's been the old time ritual for. Uh, listening to records. Ah, that's nice. Didn't know that, but that makes a lot of sense. So, um, what what were you noticing as you were reading through? I'm assuming you were talking about that because you were going to point out something interesting. Well, I, uh, I was 
the the first time I had listened through, I was just reading through the lyrics, and it got done with the second chorus, and I was like, "All right, time for the outro," and it just like did not <laughs> go there. <laughs> and yeah, there's you're not even halfway through the song at that point. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a seven minute song. But yeah, you've got two great solos being played here. Um, you've got that saxophone solo, Ooh, yeah. and then you've got a Mick Taylor solo. It just hits you with those bongo parts. It's just, it just the whole entire vibe of the entire song just changes immediately. It, yeah, it's a pretty drastic change, which explains why they can pull off a seven-minute song in pre-70s. Well, I guess we're in the 70s now, but basically pre-70s music, right? The 60s, mm-hmm. I don't think, we weren't getting into longs. I say we, we as humanity, were not getting into long songs at that point. No, that's really that starts to come around in uh, the late 60s. But really, the early 70s is is like the golden age of long jam songs. Okay, so so a seven minute song is actually kind of typical. Yeah, it was it was typical for that time. Um, it uh, like that was that was starting to become a very normal thing. Like you know, Led Zeppelin from album one 69 all had several seven eight minute jam type songs sure uh you know eric clapton was doing long extended soloing songs uh you listen to their cream's album uh crossroads it's just it's got it's got like some it's a double record and some of the songs are like 12 13 minutes long just because there's these long extended solos in the middle of them. So that was that was starting to become more of a thing. Obviously Pink Floyd around that time was was becoming big and releasing a lot of songs that had long experimental sections in them. Right. It's the the reason why punk happened in the mid 70s was because it was a response to the to the long overindulgent rock songs that had been being made for the last five, six years. And that's why they were like, we're going to make songs that are a minute and a half. They're fast, no solos, simple (laughs) and played really fast. It's because they were trying to, they were trying to go back to the roots of rock and roll, but obviously with a new edge and aggression. Mm -hmm. Because the thing of that time was, you know, long songs. You know, this is the time of American Pie and Stairway to Heaven and Free Bird and uh, Bohemian Rhapsody and, you know, these long epics. It's the time of the epic. The time so, of the epic. So it's you can see this is the way that the Rolling Stones, a band that's not known for, you know, technical musical prowess in the way that other bands are, this is the way that they would do a long song. Is they would just they would have these loose freeform jam sections. So, sort of a big picture question. I mean, obviously, as we got into the '80s, we didn't do the epic thing as much anymore. But do you think that the history of rock and metal is heading towards epics again, or is that going to be a a one and done? Well, I mean, metal has never stopped epic. Well, I mean, not in sense of like oh that's epic man like you know metal is constantly writing long songs because they don't 
conform to the rules of society. That's true. As far as hit songs, no. I don't think that'll ever happen again. Okay. I think that our generation is too ADHD to concentrate on long <laughs> songs. They, yeah. they need them short and sweet. Just I don't know, man. That's the good stuff, though. Is that stuff that really packs a punch? It is, but, you know, I think it's 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 not going to be the stuff that's on radio. Yeah. I think that that was, that, was, that was the time for it, and we won't see it again. Unless something really weird happens. Hey, it is. Maybe in, in, like, 30 years it'll happen. Who knows what music in 30 years will sound oh like. I feel like everything's just getting faster. Mm-hmm. Like, we're to the point now where it's like most songs that go viral only go viral because of, like, one part of the song. And yep. that's the only part that anybody cares about. Mm-hmm. That is oh, I thought true. You know, music what? is getting faster, like, BPM. <laughs> and I was like, well, in some cases, it's getting slower if you want to look at doom metal. Yeah. Yeah, but most most people don't look at doom metal. <laughs> I'm sa- I would think that music is getting more extreme in every genre. It's it's pushing more away from what every other genre is doing because it's so easy now for you know a a artist of whatever super distinct subgenre is to put out their type of music, mm-hmm. and so you can come up with these super crazy you know, songs and genres and styles, and then your audience will find you. I think it's, I I agree with you, but I I don't think that everything is going, I don't think it's going farther apart just because it's going farther apart. I think that anybody can, like anyone can make anything. And so there's even more weird fringe genres because if five people meet on the internet and want to make this weird album, they can just do that now. But also we have like rap and country music stars like combining on songs, which I thought would never happen ever. And so I think it's just like the ability to communicate and the openness of like the openness of music and the ease of access to both make and consume music, I think is just driving there to be more kinds of music, whether you have a Rolling Stones cover band or um, death metal, Mm -hmm. whatever. Is this song about a girl? Um, maybe the, the, common theory is that it's either a girl or a drug dealer or maybe both the girl is the drug dealer because you know maybe cocaine eyes Mm -hmm. tips that off a little bit pretty much it's it's someone and the him describing the way i'm pretty sure no matter what it's a girl uh just the way that Mm -hmm. he's describing her um, seems like it's a woman, and I think that what he's saying is that you know she's a either a drug dealer, or maybe he's the drug dealer, and she's trying to get in to get her fix. Which again, this is the point in the band's history where drugs really start to take a central hold. So that wouldn't be too much of a stretch to assume that this is definitely a song where the music takes front stage over the. Yeah. Lyrics. 
<laughs> they wrote the lyrics later. Yeah, this is kind of more just like, well, we need to, uh, we need to have lyrics to this. So, um, but, um, yeah, I I think that uh, I think that this is just a really cool song. It's got so many fun twists and turns to it. Again, when it when it switches to that instrumental section, it's so disarming. You're just like, oh, that's yeah. really because again you you like you said you expect it to end and then it doesn't it just goes into this completely other section it's just like okay <laughs> i don't it never goes back does it it's just at that nope. point it's just nope. a jam i would love to do a cover of this song this would be a really fun one to mess around with you gotta get some bongos <laughs> No, I, I, we'd probably replace that with some toms. I already, I already have a vision in my head of what I would do with it. <laughs> this is another one of your ideas that, oh boy. Yep, <laughs> you know how I am. With that. <laughs> yep. All right, go ahead and um, go to the next song. Yes. This song should have been my favorite song, but it wasn't. <laughs> what do you mean? I. This is a very close second to my favorite song in the set. It's a close second for me as well. Because it is just so... It has such a distinct musical vibe to it. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to not just pick it because it's so unique. Yeah. Alright, so this song is Paint It Black. Which I didn't realize there was a comma in it until I looked at it on Spotify. I know. We don't know why the comments there. That was a record executive decision that no one really knows the answer to. Hmm. Um, this was a number, another number one. This may be the darkest song to ever go to number one. So I know this song has a very dark meaning, but I don't know what it is. I think it has to do with death. It does. Okay, so I'm close. Pretty much, the, pretty much it's a it's um he's at a funeral and he's wanting everything around him or maybe he's not even at the funeral but he's recently experienced a death and probably been to a funeral and he's in this depression and he's he doesn't he's angered by seeing the rest of the world happy and moving on with their life and he wants everything around him to have the same dreariness that he has mm. he has this it's why he has this constant need i see something colorful it needs to be black because i feel black my soul is black i can't stand to see anyone happy or or um joyful Hmm. the the world needs to be feel as miserable as i do it's a very pessimistic song that is that is so 90s i know and this was 1966 oh my goodness like when i really think about it like lyrically the way that this song sounds it's kind of one of those songs you kind of can't believe what to know and they're they weren't yet a band that you know they would put it out and it would immediately go to number one because they're the rolling stones Mm -hmm. they hadn't quite earned that yet this was a song that you know the the if the beatles had released it then yeah it would have gone to number one because they're the beatles now 
it's a song that is so good that it deserves to go to number one, but usually songs like this don't go to number one. Yeah. Like, this is such a a weird-sounding song, a very different... It sounds nothing like pop music. But yet, it did, and it has gone on to be one of the most famous classic rock songs ever. I can't tell you the number of commercials I've heard with this song. Mm-hmm. Um, this was during the period where they were chasing the Beatles, and I think that this is an instance where the Beatles did something, and then the Rolling Stones did it better. What song and do that, you think they were? Um, they were copying the Beatles' uh, Norwegian Wood, This Bird Has Flown, which was the first uh, Western pop song to feature an Eastern instrument, the sitar. Hmm. And oh, that, that, that region was a very good song. Very good. I would say it's probably a top 25 Beatles song. But the, the sitar is not what makes it so good. It's just that the song under it happens to be really good. The song can exist without the sitar. It just happens to give it this odd little peculiarity. Painted Black completely relies upon the sound and the way the sitar is played. And it leans into this this dark uh, Eastern modality. And, or at least it sounds like it to me. It could be just a minor scale, and I'm just not hearing it it's right. A, it's like Theor- a harmonic minor. No. And so that's the sort of stuff that you play to to sound creepy and dark. Like, it can, it can mm-hmm. get really campy really fast. But I think they do it in a way that it's not. Yeah. I just, to me... It's 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 almost spine chilling mm-hmm. that intro when it comes when the guitar comes in by itself because not the sitar yeah that's the guitar coming in and then you hear the drums and it's when that it's when the it starts strumming after the drums come in it's just it's like it's so effective mm-hmm. like every time I hear it, I'm just like oh my gosh that is a perfect musical moment right there and um, I just. I just think it's amazing that that this was such a big song. And this came out right after the Beatles released Norwegian Wood. So it was pretty obvious that they were reacting to the Beatles do it. But again, I think that um, they outdid them because the, I think that this is one of the great masterpieces of rock and roll. Next to Sympathy for the Devil and Satisfaction. I put this at number three on the list. Mm. Mm-hmm. Man, so we're really hitting the top, the top tracks. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> there's some strong songs too. That's true too. Out yeah. of the the top twenty is probably still packed. Oh yeah. But you know, I kind of wanted to to hit with some of the strongest ones first. Yeah. And then, but then there's we have an almost endless number of deep cuts to pull from, and as well as tons more hits. Yeah. They're kind of like the Beatles, where they just you their their greatest hits is a double album, <laughs> and it covers the first ten years of their career. The um, first time I heard this song, I didn't actually know that it was its own song. I was watching. Mm-hmm. This was actually one of the moments when I realized I actually liked Rush. There was like this live performance at some festival, and Alex had like a 
prog beard, but they were playing Spirit of the Radio, but it was like a six minute version. And they, I was like, wow, they're doing this really weird intro that's got like this weird riff at the beginning and it was painted black and I didn't know it. And so this was, this was still when I was like going to guitar lessons. So I go in, you know, the next day or whatever, and I start playing that. And then, you know, my guitar teacher's all like, oh yeah, you're getting into the Rolling Stones. I'm like, what are you talking about? That's like the intro to Spirit of the Radio that they do live. And <laughs> I didn't understand. He, and he had to fill me in on it. And I, I get it now, but it was, like, it was still oh, pretty man. funny. Because... If a student had told me that, it would have been really hard for me to keep my cool. It just, <laughs> well, yeah. To not react to that. Yeah. I thought well, I knew that's... everything, you know? Um. Yeah, this this pretty much was an instance of Brian Jones leading the band because he's the one that plays the sitar on this song, and um, he uh, he really brings such an interesting flavor to it. Um, just the whole song, just again, just revolves around this this dark mystique. It really does feel like you're listening to um, something really exotic. Mm-hmm. It doesn't it doesn't feel like a pop song that's been Frankensteined with Eastern elements? It feels like a true natural combination, where it's 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 something that is almost solitary in music. There, I can't think of another song that sounds anything like this song yeah this is this is a truly unique song and i like how they they're able to write a sad song like a song about emotions without it being like slow and ballad and kind of sappy you know yeah it's yeah it's definitely uh it's definitely dark but not yeah sappy Mm-hmm. It it's. Mm, I had a point and it just left me, <laughs> but I'll 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 find it at some point, probably probably by after hours. You never know. Yeah. Well, um, well, we could probably go ahead and move on because this is yeah. a short song. It's it's got a couple of ideas that it does very well, but there's not oh much past it go ahead yeah it was it's it's the way that the bass is played um kind of towards the end i think maybe towards the middle towards the end there's this bass line where it's kind of like sliding up to the fifth or whatever and it sounds i mean it's it's bass doing something that's forward in the mix which is always something that my ears gonna be like wow go bassist you know but sliding up to that fifth like the or whatever and it sounds so creepy. And that, I don't think I've ever bass was doing there. That that was that was the the moment when I was listening through this set when I realized, you know, this song is actually like legitimately a dark song. Like it's mm-hmm. dark lyrically, you know, that's not super hard to do. A lot of you know, bands can pull that off. But it's dark in a different way than like, you know, a lot of metal is. A lot of metal is very dark, like, ah, kill all the people, you know, like Black Friday or something. But this is like 
like like scary, <laughs> you know, like son- uh-huh. sonically scary. So and uh, so, that, hopefully, that kind of the way that I'm starting to steer the set now is that you know there is a feeling of kind of a, a finality after "Can You Hear Me Knocking" because you mm-hmm. go through this long winding instrumental jam. And then with this, I think that this can catch you off guard a little bit and kind of immediately signal, okay, we're really starting to head in a different uh, direction now. Yeah. And we even go further into the darkness. <laughs> you pick it up on this next, next song. Fourth song. Man, mm. this this next song. Whenever I first heard it, I was just like, "Ooh, I've got to put this in the set." Mm. <laughs> this is the one where I can hear the Led Zeppelin. I can hear a lot of Zeppelin in this. There's actually a really great reason for that. Okay. John well, Paul Jones playing the Mellotron on this song. <laughs> ah, that would be it, yeah. So this- Which, for those of you that don't know, uh, he is Led Zeppelin's bassist and keyboardist and string arranger. Bassist and everything that's not drums or vocals or guitar. Yep. <laughs> So this um, song is 2,000 Light Years From Home. And it's from it. their their flopped album, Their Satanic Majesty's Request. But I actually, I actually now, like this. I really like it too. Um, their Satanic Majesty's Request is, is half a really cool experimental record. Half of it is um, really bad wannabe psychedelic mm-hmm. and, we'll get, and we'll get into some of that when we go to our bad music podcast for our patrons um there's just there's moments where they really accomplish whatever uh mood they're trying to go for and then other times where i'm just like what were you guys thinking mm-hmm so um this was this came out in 67 obviously this was the the big year of you know psychedelic LSD which they were definitely taking a lot of LSD this was kind of again the the album that made them realize that um they didn't want to continue in the direction that Brian Jones was pushing them as well as um, there was a lot of personal trouble in the band during this time because at the time that they were making it, um, Mick Jagger got busted for drugs. And remember how I said that they uh, uh, were the first ever big rock and roll drug bust? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were the uh, were part of the joint bust. <laughs> But really, what they got busted for was not anything shocking. Like they didn't, they didn't find cocaine or heroin. They didn't even really find LSD. They found um, kind of like what you would call. I mean, really, it's meth, but it's not meth in the way that you would think of, like smoking it. And when you say people are, it's what it was like, what they called uppers, which was actually very common for musicians to use. Beatles used them all the time um, of just pills that you would take that would boost your energy and keep you awake through grueling recording sessions or long performances where, you know, you're pretty much burning the candle at both ends. You're yeah. like, how do we even stay conscious and have enough energy 
to put on a great show or to nail this um, take. Well, they would take these pills. They were they were called uppers, or um, I guess it's what you would call speed. And um, and really, what it is at its core is it's method, but just it's in a pill form rather than crystal. And um, that's what he was busted with. Hmm. And um, they actually weren't even his; they were his girlfriend's, Marion Faithfuls. Um, but he got busted with it because she left it in his coat pocket mm. and they both forgot that they were in there. And so um, one of Mick Jagger's friends that he was hanging out with tipped off the police and said, hey, there's there's a big old drug orgy going on at Mick Jagger's house. <laughs> and so the the police just burst in. And of course, when they searched his pockets, they found the pills. It was actually actually it was at Keith's house because Keith got arrested for hosting a drug party and for willingly allowing drugs to be partaken at his residence, not for actually any drug possession himself. Hmm. hmm. Yeah, that is kind of weird. And then pretty soon after that, Brian Jones got busted as well. Like probably three months. It was actually the day of Keith and Mick's court hearing that they busted Brian Jones and he did have a lot of drugs and the hard stuff. So that's the lead into this. Yes. So he wrote this song while he was in prison. Mick Jagger did the lyrics to it. Mm -hmm. How long was he in prison? Um, He was in prison for like two months, I think. Because he actually ended up um, having his case reviewed, and they found a lot of um, uh, stuff that the police had done incorrectly. And so on a technicality, they were able to let him off. And they, they found that the judge was did not give him a fair sentence, that the judge was shown to have a bias against rock and roll and was going out of his way to not give him a fair sentence, but to try and make an example of him. And so they felt that he didn't receive a fair trial or a fair sentencing. And so they let him go, but put him on probation. And part of that consequence was that he was not able to leave the country for like two years. And so for two years, they lost their hold on America, which is why Sticky Fingers was the big conquest, because they could finally go back to America and promote that record in earnest. So is this song... Then this is a this is about being in jail. No, I don't think so. To me, this this feels like your typical um, '60s psychedelic, yeah, uh, mumbo jumbo. I have I, a feeling yeah. that this song is not really about anything. This is this is kind of like psychedelic buzzwords. Trying that's, that's to, the feeling I'm getting. Trying to be cosmic, but. I think that it does exactly what they were wanting it to do, which is to create this this spooky psychedelic atmosphere. Yeah, this mm-hmm. is a whenever uh, I because whenever I'm getting ready for these episodes and listening to the songs, I usually always listen to them with my son Harry. And mm-hmm. every time this song comes in, he goes, "This is a spooky song, Dad." <laughs> but he would never say it like he was scared, like because he. 
I found out this Halloween that he likes spooky things. Yeah. He thinks spooky things are cool. But he would always say, this this is kind of spooky, isn't it? <laughs> uh, and also, his, his favorite song of the set is Painted Black. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it, it's really close with him between that and Sympathy for the Devil, which I think is hilarious that a four-year-old kid loves Sympathy for the Devil. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I just think there's so many cool things going on in this song you've got that really avant-garde dissonant intro with the piano which was played by brian jones that part was and then you have the mellotron coming in and that that really creepy guitar line i love that i think it's so cool it's a shame that it doesn't get played more in the song i would like to hear it a couple more times but this song is just all about atmosphere. Yeah. Hey, I mean, they left you wanting more, though. Uh huh. I think one of the interesting things lyrically, the one thing that I really like to pull is how throughout the song, the distance from home is increasing. I think that that's a cool little. Yeah. Like it would. I thought. I felt like it could have been very easy for them to just say two thousand light years every time. Mm-hmm. But I like that he's starting off. You're a hundred. You're two hundred. You're five hundred. You're a thousand, and then finally ending with two thousand. There's there's no resolution. It doesn't. There's never a point where you turn around and start going back home. It feels like there's a there was a thing when you took LSD, where if you got some bad acid, you would have what was called a bad trip. And it was usually these bad trips that would end up mentally scarring people. You know, if they if they have a particularly bad trip, it can, you know, really mess up their brain permanently. Mm-hmm. And it could be that perhaps they're describing a bad trip. Where you have this you have this feeling of constantly being removed away from the real world into this fantastical world that there's no escape from mm-hmm. but I can't yeah. prove that that's just a, a guess I I think that you were correct when you said it was psychedelic mumbo jumbo I think I, I think that it is if I'm trying to think if you could pull any meaning from it that right, that right. could possibly be it right true it, and so really this one you're right it's it's all about the atmosphere it's all about the mood in the same way kind of like how can't you hear me knocking was it's not about the lyrics as much as it is the music behind it mm-hmm. and it's kind of like well we need vocals otherwise the the vibe is going to be wrong so i guess come up with lyrics maybe but still the uh there's such a um there's such a there's such a, a oppressive atmosphere throughout even the vocals, just the the whispered nature of them and um, kind of those those high creepy harmonies. Um, yeah, and then I love all the sound effects that are coming in and out. It's just it's I feel like that this is a great psychedelic song. I think that this is a song that really would have done a great job at showing what aspect of psychedelia they could provide as contrast to the Beatles. Cause all the Beatles psychedelia was with maybe a c- 
couple few exceptions, but for the most part, their psychedelia was pretty happy. Mm-hmm. Like it was, uh, you know, like like Lucy in the Sky of Diamonds is a very um, happy portrait of a psychedelic landscape. You know, their psychedelic songs were All You Need Is Love and Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever and I Am The Walrus. Like, you know, it's all, they're all the happy sounding. Maybe not as much I Am The Walrus, but still not, that's not near as dark as 2000 Light Years From Home. Yeah. And the way it ends is kind of creepy too. Mm-hmm. I just feel like on a sonic level, they did a really good job of putting this song together. And uh, let me check real quick on where I had put it on the playlist. I had put it at number 16. Number six. You know, I would have expected it to be lower, but I mean, even considering like the fact that they have such an extensive catalog that you did go through. Mm-hmm. And you'd say this would probably be the standout from this album. No, I think there's actually one more song that's even better on it. Oh, really? That okay. is, is in the top 10. Uh, okay. That, that's, it's a really good song. Um, but yeah, and so kind of my goal with this set emotionally is starting with Paint It Black, I kind of want to really <laughs> make things dark and depressing for the listener. Mm-hmm. And then immediately, just all of a sudden, like the sunshine just breaking through with the mm-hmm. song. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, this is kind of where the Rolling Stones meets Pink Floyd. And I'll, I'll, I'll defend that if you need me to, but we can go ahead and introduce this song. Well, I would say that if you're going to take that point, then that means that this created uh, that era of Pink Floyd. Because Pink Floyd were not writing songs like this yet. If you listen to Pink Floyd in 1969, which is when this song came out, then um, it would sound nothing like this. Um, most of their songs would sound like 2000 Light Years from Home in 1969. 1969 was the time where they were at their most experimental and most inaccessible. But I mean, I don't, I don't think Pink Floyd ever really got to like this amount of symphonic nature, but for some, some weird way, and I can't put my finger on it. It sounds like, Roger Waters would have put this on the wall had he had the idea. Yeah, that's that's what I'm that's what I'm was feeling you were saying. Right. right that right. era of the band. Mm-hmm. So I guess what I was trying to clear up is that this is not something that the Rolling Stones would have gone, oh, let's make this like Pink Floyd. Because Pink Floyd was not like they weren't even that big. No, they were they were probably at that time the biggest underground band in England. Like, they definitely had a very strong reputation, but they didn't, they were not a commercial band yet. One till Dark Side, well, which was. Which is 73. Wow. Was, yes, it's crazy. Double. That was their, uh, I think it was their eighth album. It took them a while, but hey, persistence. Yeah, but man, a lot of the stuff up till that point is still really good. So uh, this final song is You Can't Always Get What You Want. 
Yes. And this is off of their 1969 album, Let It Bleed, which I think is probably their best album, at least that I've heard so far. This is a okay. really, really good album. The number uh, two song is also from this album, but this song I put at number six. Number six. Oh my gosh, this one is my favorite. Oh, it's okay. You don't. Well, I. It's really good. There's something that I have. Keep going. This is just a very epic song. I yeah, and it is, and I have. There's a special place in my musical heart for something that has so many different parts to it that all come together perfectly. That almost the almost the more parts you have, the more you can fit into a song and make it work and make them all have their own distinct function, the more fun to listen to for me. Uh-huh. You know, mo- most of the time. That's not always the case. I mean, uh, there's a lot of music that I like that's pretty much just, you know, power trio. But something like this, where it's like you have two different types of choirs and you have um, completely different moods all throughout the song. Um, and the way that the, that the lyrics kind of loop back on themselves and, and it's just, it, it, yeah, it's just, it's so well made. I think in every way there was enough attention to detail to every facet of songwriting that that's why I can say that on the complete you know, roster on the complete is this song good rubric. This one has consistently the highest marks of any of the songs in the set. That's why it's my favorite. And I just, I, I had fun listening to it. Yeah. Well, it was cathartic. Yeah. And this is definitely, you know, where the cathartic moment comes in when you get to the, that big part at the end, there's definitely this sense of finality, but yet when you look at the lyrics, it's actually not all sunshine and roses. There's a bit of a backhanded optimism to this song. Pretty yeah. much the whole song is about not getting what you want, but instead getting what you need. And kind of the happiness in that song is the realization that what you, what you got that you needed was the better thing anyway, even if it's not what you wanted at that moment. Mm-hmm. And so pretty much what the verses are is they're just telling these different stories. Like you've got the first verse of I saw her today at the reception. It's inferred that this is a wedding reception and kind of the story that they're hinting at. What he's doing a great job is that he's he's telling these complete vignettes. These vignettes are not really meant to be connected to each other, um, but they all share the same theme. It's kind of like each verse yeah. is its own story and the theme of the story is punched in with that chorus. Almost kind of Octavarian style. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. Yeah. Um, the first story being um, him seeing the bride or maybe even a bridesmaid of someone that um, I, I'm pretty sure it's the bride. And she's already appearing to not be happy like she's settled for the wrong man, the man that she doesn't really love. She's looking for a better man. But the man that she has, he's telling her he can't always get what you want, but maybe the man that you married is the man that you need. 
the second verse I think is probably the most interesting one to me because this is aimed at the hippie culture, the hippie movement about the people that protested, the people that because um, the Rolling Stones never really bought into the whole hippie movement, even though they bought into the psychedelic soundscape, they never were like protesting for love and peace and, you know, end the yeah. war. And well, they were the bad guys. Yeah. Was, that didn't, their well, they weren't like, they weren't going to get in that kind of thing. And so, um, when, you know, when everything didn't work out for the hippies, in the following years when instead of things getting better, things got worse. He's pretty much telling them that, you know, you didn't get what you want with all your protesting, all of your, uh, all of your speeches and all of your, uh, you know, theories of better living, but maybe the future that we're walk working towards is the better one anyway. And the one that we need, maybe, you know, this this more violent world that seems to take with force is actually what's going to be better for us in the long run. Maybe hmm. we maybe we never could win the win the world with peace and love. I I again there's there's this intense cynicism to it, yet there's this optimism of like that the cynicism is what's going to make everything better. And I think yeah. because of that, it's there's this very cool, complex story going on, this message. And I think that, again, the music is really enforcing that at the end, what we're getting that we need is the better thing and, and that it's going to bring in the better future. Because, man, 1969 was a big year of uncertainty. There was a lot of big success. I mean, you have the moon landing. But you also have, you know, all the, a lot of the revolutionaries had died. Martin Luther King had died. Malcolm X had died. The Kennedys had been killed. The Vietnam War was really, at this point, starting to uh, turn south. It was we were starting to realize that we're this is a war we're going to lose. And um, there was just there was so much unrest, especially when the hippies realized that their movement wasn't accomplishing anything. There's a lot of cynicism, a lot of depression. And I think that this song perfectly encapsulates the time that they were in. Hmm. So. Uh, anyway, yeah. Musically, and, and, I think. And that's what I mean is like, that's, that's why I think this song is so great is because there's so much depth to the lyrics. Like, obviously, there's depth to the other songs that we talked about. I mean, Sympathy for the Devil, there's more there than I thought there was, right? And and same thing with Paint It Black. Same thing with Satisfaction. Um, but it's like there's so many layers to this that I think we don't really appreciate from certainly from this era of music mm -hmm. that I think that's something that, that I wish I had taken more time to do. Now that now that we're talking about this, anyway, you were talking about something else. Yeah, say we we have a nice little parallel to the first song of because musically they're they're structured very similarly, mm -hmm. where we have this constant build towards the climax of the song, 
and it's it's done it's done in a very different way though instead of how we noticed in the first song in sympathy for the devil that um the building is done very subtly in this instance like this this just continues to become we're adding more and more parts to where it turns into this massive wall of sound and you've got you've got vocals more and more vocals coming in you've got piano really starting to play more and more notes the the drums are doing more fills and i think it's just interesting that both the first and the last song build but they build in very different ways mm-hmm. yeah so well uh ethan what did you pull from this song in the does does the woman that we mentioned at the beginning that is marrying that guy end up killing her husband and remarrying? Um, I don't think she kills him. Oh, I see what you mean because lyrically from the last verse. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? It's like it says, "I saw her today at the reception." I think probably it's uh, the same. I think that it's metaphorical for like broke his heart. I think that the the blood and the bleeding man I think is meant to be metaphorical. I don't think it's literal. Right. But I think I think what he's I think what he's getting at is that she didn't take his advice. And she instead instead of accepting what she needed, she pursued too hard for what she wanted. And ended up ruining a relationship because of it. And in the end, it's he's definitely painting her as a villain. She's she's he's painting her as this this cruel, sadistic woman. Like he's not painting her in a very positive light. Mm-hmm. So, I think that that's that's where the story kind of comes full circle but yeah it is really cool how it kind of comes back to the i saw her today at the reception yeah because yeah the first at first she's holding a glass of wine and the sex she's holding a bleeding man yeah i think that that's and really you could say that both of those are related to each other because wine and blood could be the same color depending on what wine you're having mm-hmm. and so i think that that's a pretty clever way of kind of Again, tying it back around and reprising, but at the same time finishing the story. So, um, anything else that you guys want to point out? I think I think that's great because, yeah, I think that this song sounds the best out of all the songs. Oh, for sure. I wouldn't argue. Like, there's just tons of sonic information and it's just really clean and I don't know there's just right. some really interesting sound mm-hmm. in here it, that's 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 kind of a necessity that you have to do with songs with lots and lots of instruments every instrument has to be as clear as possible and mixed perfectly so it doesn't take up any equalization room any sonic space that anything else will eventually take up you know that's that's the reason why um you know, a band like Rush, their mixes are so, 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 so clean because they do a lot of, you know, really tight, fast runs, but they also have 
keyboard parts that will come in and out and whatever. And so when those leave, you can hear everything else very clear, but when they come in, you know, and they have to do this um, on, you can't always get what you want. The stones have to, because you have those choirs coming in and out. I think there's a piano at some point. Um, there's also, there's also another interesting thing that I would like to mention. I used to really like hate this song. <laughs> this is, this is the kind, this is a kind of another man in the mirror. Situation yes. Where, because anytime anybody else would play it, they would just play the song and it wouldn't be like this big moment, uh-huh. you know, it's, it's not like, it's not the fulfillment of anything when you just play it on its own. Right. But when you play it with these five songs ahead of it, it sounds like it's the fulfillment of everything that came before it musically uh-huh. and thematically as well. Right. Is like, I can't get no satisfaction. Well, you can't always get what you want, you know, <laughs> uh, there you, go. Well, you know what I mean? But it's, it's, I don't know. And so I felt that going through the song, it felt more like an epic. It felt like it filled the seven and a half minutes with non-cheesy stuff. Um, and lyrically, it just, it, it, and also just taking the time to analyze it and listen through the whole thing without shutting my brain off as soon as I hear the choir. Uh-huh. A personal, a personal story for me on this song. My, and this is so funny to think about. Every Christmas, I would ask my mom for a present. She would always say, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you might find you get what you need. And I never understood where that came from. <laughs> I was just like, what? what is that from? And she would just say it to me again. Or, or she would just say it's a song, but she wouldn't say who it was. And then I remember hearing it one time, and I go. That's what my mom always told me every Christmas. She always made me so mad when she said that. So you have bad memories of this song. In, in a, a weird, weird kind of way, way, but not of the song itself, just of uh, of her always telling me that. I actually told her that the other day that we were uh, doing this episode and that this was one of the songs and we laughed about that because she remembered always doing that. Well, um, I think we can go ahead and take another break here and go on to the next section and do our final thoughts. All right. So stay tuned. We're going to do final thoughts and then wrap things up. So we'll be right back. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Ethan. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just got done with our second segment, which is where we listened to our six songs for the week. This week, it was the Rolling Stones, and we had Sympathy for the Devil, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, Can't You Hear Me Knocking, Paint It Black, 2,000 Light Years From Home, and You Can't Always Get What You Want. And now, it's time for Final Thoughts. This is where uh, we all just kind of talk about uh, how our perceptions of the band has changed. And so, uh, Grant, why don't you start us off? What were your final thoughts? Well, I think it kind of goes without saying this is like the the normal thing that I usually say about most bands because I'm not the, the thing the thing about the podcast is that it's introduced me to a lot of bands and so a lot of our volume ones for bands are like I've yes I've heard of them but I've never really listened to them and I would say that the Rolling Stones is very much that 
Um, and obviously, I know some of the songs. I obviously know Satisfaction, Sympathy for the Devil, Paint It Black, I've heard before. And then I mentioned that I didn't even like You Can't Always Get What You Want, but that changed. And so I wish I knew which album I could go listen to now. I think it's probably going to be Let It Bleed because, I mean, Lucas, you did mention that that was a really strong album. I would go so, Beggar's Banquet. Really? Okay. So there you go. That would be that would be the next step for me um, now, now that you say that. But I thought it was I thought it was cool going also through just the different weird facets of a band. And we normally don't do that. Um, you know, like when we did Pantera, it was a lot of very accessible stuff whereas maybe this is this is also accessible but all these songs are very different from each other in a way i mean like 2000 light years from home is completely different from satisfaction you know in in just style um, and then paint it black is just a much darker more sinister song sonically than something like symphony for the devil and i found that really really cool that all these songs can come from the same band and fit in the same set and yet have such a good cathartic ending. I enjoyed the set. I enjoyed the band. I enjoyed hearing about the band, about their influence. I think, Lucas, you gave a very good defense for why they are so significant and why they are the defining rock and roll band in history. Um, and I, I follow your line of logic, and I will agree with it. Um, yeah. So it, it – I – definitely increased my appreciation because my appreciation was pretty much zero um so i would i would be willing to defend the notion that the rolling stones are the rock and roll band all right i think i think for me this this episode um i guess was a lot more informational for me than it was uh like musical experience not that there was no musical experience but i i found myself whenever i was listening and whenever i was whenever i was listening to you and whenever i was listening to the songs it was more of almost like a historical thing you know i was more curious and i was just like why are why is it these guys you know what's Mm. what's so special about these guys and i'm glad that i got the explanation i'm glad that i got to listen to the songs um just to kind of what grant was saying where it's just like i i would agree that after hearing the history and hearing what they were writing at the time that they were writing it it's pretty insane that they were i mean it's a it's a fair comparison to say that the rolling stones and the beatles are like kindred spirits in their genres um so yeah i guess my final thoughts aren't like as probably deep as they normally are because i feel like whenever Lucas said we were going to do the Rolling Stones, I was already like, yes, I finally get to learn about the Rolling Stones. And then <laughs> I did learn about the Rolling Stones. <laughs> and so that was, uh, I mean, obviously they sound good. I mean, it's a six, it's a late sixties, early seventies, you know, set list. And so, uh, sonically, you know, we're, you know, not in the super modern phase, but, in terms of songwriting ability and genre, I this this was uh, I would say this is this was probably like a ten out of ten episode on the informational scale for me. Now I know what the Rolling Stones sound like, so very appreciative. Well, what about personally? For you? 
personally, I, I mean, again, it was, it was just more informational for me. I, I would say in terms of my, my interest in looking into the band, I would probably give Let It Sleep, or sorry, Let It Bleed a, uh, a listen through, just because I just liked how uh, you can't always get what you want sounded, you know? Yeah. But again, I'm not like a super big classic rock guy, but I have an appreciation for it, but I don't think I'm going to like be like diving into the Rolling Stones catalog. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about, and the fun part about listening to Lead is that that song is the last song on that album too. Oh, that's nice. So you, But I did love the set list. I agree with Grant that I thought that this set list it's it's like at first I, I thought that the set list was simple, but then I was like, well, the Rolling Stones are just a simple band, and then mm-hmm. I then I was like, this this set is actually genius, you know, because it 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 moves through all of I think the colors that the Rolling Stones brings to the right. table. Mm-hmm. I mean, starting with Symphony for the Devil was genius, right? And I expected it to end, like, knowing that we were doing the Rolling Stones, I expected Satisfaction to be at the end because, like, that's, you know, that's the number one riff of all time. Ha ha, watchmojo.com. But (laughs) I completely forgot that you can't always get what you want existed. And I'm like, oh, that's just perfect. And then I was like, wait a minute. That is perfect. And that's, that's kind of what was like, this song is good. So it kind of threw me for a loop, but it was great. It's, uh, I feel like I'm just, I'm getting better at set listing as I go. It's, it's, I'm not saying that as in like, oh, it's just, I, I'm finding that taking the time to really make sure I have the right songs is, is, is working. Cause each time, like, and it really helps so much that I, I have you guys that I need to win over with each set. And so thinking in terms of just like, how do I put a set together for either one of the two of you or both of you? That's just like, okay, my goal with this set list is to at least get you interested in this band. And I find that when I do that, the, the sets are really coming together nicely. And so um, it's it's really fun to put them together. What about you, Lucas? Final thoughts? For me, um, I have been a Stones fan for a while. Um, I remember that it was in early 2015. I just decided on a whim because I'd started to listen to more classic rock radio at the time, this was still right before I started to get into Spotify and I would just search for what I wanted to listen to. I was still very much a, I'm not going to listen to anything unless I buy it on iTunes. Mm-hmm. And so I only, but I was always, it was a point in my life where I was kind of just like, I would buy albums that I know are important, even if I didn't know anything about them. Like it was during that time that I started to listen to Fleetwood Mac for the first time and started to listen to Pink Floyd and I remember I was saying I was just like I really like some of these Rolling Stones songs that I'm hearing on the radio and so I got their greatest hits uh which is one of the more famous greatest hits out there that Hot Rocks 
and um, I remember listening through it and like it, it the songs grow go in chronological order. So you hear their earliest hits first and it moves forward from like 64 to 71. And I remember the further I was getting into, I was just like, oh man, these songs keep getting better. I remember it was when it got to Sympathy for the Devil that I was just like, I immediately, instead of going to the next song, I just hit back and listened to it again. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is an incredible song. And so from that point, I was a Stones fan, but I definitely do feel like I understand them more now. I understand their influences. I understand their legacy. I under- I feel like I'm better able to answer that question of why them more than just saying they made great songs. And... Because, I mean, obviously, I always knew that the Rolling Stones were, like, the band after the Beatles. But, you know, I couldn't really give a definitive answer other than, you know, they just, oh, look how many great songs they have. That was kind of all that I could stake that argument on. And now I feel like I can answer that more. And because of that, my appreciation definitely has grown for them. So that's, that's where I stand now. It's usually very um, rare when my appreciation doesn't change. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, because I mean, I, I more so than and either of you guys, I'm I'm very entrenched in the band for a while. So, yeah. I you know for about a week, I I live exclusively with them and learn a lot about them, and so that usually always translates into. Uh, into a lot of uh, new appreciation. So um, that's it for this episode. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. If you like this episode and you want to uh, be notified of when new ones come out, please hit that subscribe button. We have new episodes that come out every Monday morning, 9 a.m. Central. Um, We are going to be doing another music history episode next week. So if you are are a fan of that uh, little sub-series that we're doing, you're not going to want to miss it. We're going to be remaining. This will be our last episode in the medieval period because we're going to start focusing on the uh, killer music of that time, which I think is going to be really illuminating and there's some really cool music in there i've already got the song for it and uh make sure that you check that out um as well as go check out our other episodes as well we've got at this point now we've got quite a few episodes behind us so um go back and see if um we've covered a favorite band of yours already and if not if you look through our list of episodes and you find yourself wanting then please message us on social media let us know what bands you want us to cover in the future i've already made a resolution this year that at least once a month we're going to be doing a fan suggestion so your requests do matter we don't just see them and go, oh, okay, yeah, cool, whatever. Thanks for listening to the podcast. 
you know, we're going to be taking these pretty seriously. So um, let us know who you want us to talk about. And uh, if you want to become a patron, there is a link in the description of the episode for that. And um, we've got a lot of cool, exclusive and early content there. And also in the description of the episode, that's where you can go listen to the songs. Please go listen to them, even if you think, oh, man, I've listened to these songs so many times before. Trust me, listening to them in the order that they're in definitely makes a difference. And with that, I'm Luca. I'm Grant. I'm Ethan. Keep on listening to good music. <laughs>